Well, this morning, we're going to continue in our Christmas series titled, Why the Nativity? And I'd like you, if you would, to just go straight to the scriptures. If you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn to Galatians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. You can follow along with us. The scriptures will be up on the screens to my left and right. Now, this is not, as you'll see, a traditional Christmas scripture. But as I get into the message deeper this morning, I think you'll understand why I am using it. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. I'm reading this morning from the NIV version. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. You know, it wasn't just but several weeks ago that we celebrated Veterans Day. And every year, whenever that holiday comes along, I can't help but think of my father, a veteran who served in World War II. My dad enlisted in the Army when he was 16 years old. He lied and said he was 18. And he barely made the weight requirements, but he literally entered the army as a boy and he came out as a man. A man who served five years on the European front and had seen more horrors of war than probably any human being would ever, ever want or have to see. Several years ago, I was watching Saving Private Ryan in our, in our living room, and it, and it was during that scene, the opening scene of, that, uh, of the beaches in Normandy, and I was overcome with emotion. I started to literally bawl my head off thinking about my dad and thinking about uh, his entire generation that fought probably one of the most important and ugliest wars in all of history. And you know, when I think of World War II, for some reason, my mind always defaults to that historic day called D-Day, the day when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and under extreme resistance from Nazi Germany. And that's the reason I think my mind defaults there is because over my lifetime, I have consumed a lot of historical uh, information about that gigantic battle. And what I've come to understand and what I've come to really appreciate about D-Day is the intricate timing of it all. Because success on those five French beaches depended on accurately coordinating multiple factors. And the timing, simply put, had to be perfect on all levels. For example, the weather had to be good in order for the ships to be able to safely offload their troops onto landing craft out in the channel. The moon had to be full in order for the pilots and the captains of the more than 5,000 ships that were used to ferry in men and equipment could see where they were going. The tide had to be high in order for the landing craft to get over the obstacles that Nazi General Rommel had placed along that 50-mile stretch of beach. They had to send out faulty but believable intelligence in order for the Germans to think that the landing was taking place about five or ten miles north of where it actually happened. And the Allies constructed an imaginary army equipped with inflatable tanks in order to help with this deception. 
24,000 paratroopers had to hit their jump zones at night in order to secure the roads and the bridges used for the 175,000 soldiers who would be landing on the beaches the next morning. In addition to all of that, there had to be the coordination of a multinational allied force, which means that General Eisenhower had to stroke the egos of several generals and politicians in order to make this invasion even happen. And in many ways, that was as complicated as the battle itself from what I've read. So when you consider how all of these factors had to come together, you begin to realize what a miraculous day D-Day actually was. And the reason that I've spent all this time talking to you about the D-Day invasion is because Christmas is the annual celebration of another miraculous invasion, because it was the day when Jesus came to invade our world. Now, to be sure, Jesus' arrival didn't look anything like your typical invasion, but just like the Allied forces, Jesus came into an occupied land, a land that was being ruled by the conquering Romans, but there were no ships, there were no troops, there were no instruments of war on that D-Day. An impressive and powerful army did show up, but they brought songbooks instead of swords, and they left shortly after singing the invader's praises. And speaking of the invader, well, he seemed very un-invader-like. He was just a newborn baby. He was wrapped in nothing but rags. He was laid in a feed trough in a small hamlet called Bethlehem. And other than some shepherds who came along to pay their respects, the only people that were with him when he arrived on those shores was his mother, a Galilean peasant, and a carpenter from Nazareth who had obediently assumed his role of foster dad. So when you look at the way that Jesus came, it didn't look at all like an invasion, and yet it was the most important arrival in all of history. As the words to a famous poem go, all the armies that have ever marched, all the knaves that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned have not affected the life of men on this earth as much as that one solitary life. And of course, we are talking about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you weren't with us last Sunday, when we began this series, you need to know that at this particular Christmas, we are gonna focus on answering some certain questions. They are questions that help to remind us of the significance of Jesus coming. And this morning, the question that we're seeking to answer is this, why did Jesus invade our world the way that he did? And also, why is this something that you and I celebrate? Well, I wanna offer you two answers for you to consider this morning. And the first one is, the manner of Jesus coming showed God's perfect timing. The way that Jesus invaded our world put a spotlight on just how long, how carefully, and how wisely God planned to save mankind from our sin. And you know what? His plan also came off accurately. Jesus landed at the precise time in exactly the right beachhead. In fact, let me review a few of the factors that, that shows God's wisdom and careful planning. First of all, when Jesus came, it was a time of peace. 
And please understand, this was unprecedented in history. The, the, the world of that day had never known a time like this, a time for when, for the most part, all conflict had ceased. There's always been wars, wars between the Babylonians and the nations that they conquered, wars between the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians, wars between the Greeks and the Persians, wars between the Romans and the many nations that they ultimately conquered. And there were even wars within the Roman Empire itself. It seemed that there was constant conflict. There had, there had been Julius Caesar who crossed the Rubicon, which was an attack that led to the end of the Republic. Then came Caesar's assassination, which was followed by civil wars when Antony and Augustus uh, defeated Brutus and Cassius. And then there was the war between Antony and Augustus. But once Augustus defeated Antony and became the sole ruler, intra-war Roman wars actually ceased. Augustus also uh, successfully conducted conflicts on the various borders and against the pirates who at that time were ruling the seas. And with all these victories, Augustus established what was known as the Pax Romana, and it lasted from 27 BC all the way until AD 180. So Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was born in this time of unprecedented absence of conflict. He invaded our world when for a time, mankind had laid its arms aside. Roman law had prevailed for over two centuries, and under this law, the apostles and other missionaries of the gospel found protection, and they found security. Whenever rioting occurred as a result of their, their, their preaching and their teaching, there were Roman magistrates who would quell the rioting. In fact, if you'll remember, on more than one occasion, the apostle Paul was spared brutal treatment simply by announcing that he was a Roman citizen. And of course, he had special privileges by being a Roman citizen. So there was peace there that allowed the gospel to spread unimpeded, literally all over the world. Another example of God's perfect timing was when Jesus came, the great cities of the world were united by a vast system of highways. These roads were so carefully constructed that some of them are, are, are still in existence today. And I might add, many are in better condition than the roads you ride on in Red Bluff, California. <laughs> Is it just me or do we have horrible roads in this town? Thank God they, they did Main Street. I'm so happy. I drive down Main Street and I have a good time, man. I'm just, I got the gangster lean going and cruising. It's, it, I tell Lisa every time we go to, I love Main Street. It's so smooth. Before it was... I'm sorry, I get off on tangents sometimes. And... But along those roads, the Apostle Paul and the early missionaries, they traveled quickly and they spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Understand these Roman roads meant that there was no rigid borders between the provinces. There was no border checkpoints. There was no need for any kind of a passport. And all of this provided ease of movement, just like we have in the United States. We can pretty much go where we want to go. And that happened all around the empire. And with the pirates having been defeated out in the seas, it also made possible for ships to come for quicker and safer and more direct travel. Another example 
of God's perfect timing was there was also religious freedom at this point in history. For the most part, Augustus respected the customs and religions and his empire gave them autonomy which meant that at least during this chapter of history, Christians did not fear persecution. And this allowed the church to build a firm foundation. It was a foundation that would survive later on when persecution came and came very heavily against the New Testament church. Another example of God's perfect timing, there was a universal language. Up to this point, the world was filled with all kinds of languages and dialects, very much like it is today. Mankind had not had a, a common tongue since the days of Babel. But along came a man named Alexander the Great who instituted Greek as the common language. It was the most flexible and versatile language that people had ever used. And by the time Jesus was born, everyone in the world spoke or read just a little bit of Greek, enough Greek to get by. Legal documents were written in Greek. And of course, we know the New Testament was also written in Greek. So you can imagine how this hastened the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then last but not least, another example of God's perfect timing was the, the census that Caesar Augustus ordered. As I said last week, in this proclamation, Augustus was unknowingly serving as God's errand boy because it was his census that brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem in the first place. And in doing so, it fulfilled Micah's prophecy that, that Jesus was born exactly where God said he would be born. Well, the way that God brought about all of these very important factors and brought them all together helps us to understand this phrase in this morning's scripture reference. In Galatians 4.4, Paul writes, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Only an omniscient and omnipotent God could bring all of these things together so perfectly. Only our eternal God could work through the millennia in order to bring his plan to fruition. Although a bit dated, I want to read to you something from author Jay Kessler. He addresses this when he writes, when most people think of Christmas, they think of camels, swaddling cloths, and a manger. But I think of a Ford motor plant. One year I toured a plant and watched them assemble cars. It was an eye opener. I'd always had the idea Ford would guess how many cars they needed to make that many and make that many. They decided to make a green car one day and then they'd make two or 3,000. Then they'd switch to some other color. But of course, that's not the way they do it. All over America, people walk into Ford dealerships, look around, kick a few tires, and then order a car, a certain model with specific equipment, color, and transmission. The dealer fills out a computer card and then an order is placed with Ford Motor Company. In one city, they make the correct transmission. In another city, they make vinyl roofs. That's the dated part I was telling you about. And in another, mirrors. All these places start feed, feeding the products toward the Ford plant. The Ford plant has a man who puts on steering wheels. The cars come down the lines. And when the green car comes, you can, be, you can bet he doesn't get a red steering wheel to put on it. At exactly the right time, the green steering wheels are there. He reaches out, grabs one, sticks it on. That's what happens with each part, the mirror, the roof, the seat covers, every part shows up at precisely the right instant. Now, 
If man is capable of designing such an ingenious system to bring thousands of events and people together with precise timing just to make a car, well, imagine what God can do in preparing his visit to earth. That's what I think of at Christmas. The number of things God brought together at one time in one place is so incredible, it makes the Ford plant look like the corner gas station. Some people have the idea that Jesus was a remedial action, a last minute band-aid stuck on a wounded world. They think that God had tried everything else, so he decided to try his son. But the Bible says Jesus came in the fullness of time and everything was as fully prepared for him as possible. All the pieces of history fell together. God's preparation was staggering, amen? I share that with you not just to make you praise God for his perfect timing, but my hope is that it will encourage you to trust God's perfect timing in your own personal life. Because there's one thing that Christmas should help all of us to understand. God not only knows what is best for you and me, but he also knows when it is best to bring it to you and me. Jesus' coming, his invasion into our world shall help each one of us to trust in God's providential care. It should help us to learn to wait on his perfect timing. I was reading about some tra trapeze artists called the Flying Rudellas. They talked about their very unique skill set, and they explained two major positions on their team. There is the flyer, that's the one who lets go, and then there's the catcher. That's the guy who, who does the catching of the person who's flying through the air who just let go. And they explain that there is a very special relationship between the flyer and the catcher on the trapeze. As you might imagine, this relationship is very important, especially to the flyer. Well, when the flyer is swinging above the crowd on the trapeze, on the trapeze there comes a moment when he must let go. So he arcs his body into the air, and his job is to remain as still as possible, just waiting for the strong hands of the catcher to literally pluck him out of the air. One trapeze artist said the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. He must wait in patient, absolute trust. The catcher will catch him, but he must wait. In case you haven't personally experienced this or not, in your own personal life, there will be times when you're gonna feel like you're just hanging out there. You ever been there? Just kind of floating along, right? And you'll wonder what it is that's taking God so long. And in those times of waiting, what happens is we are tempted to take things into our own hands. When we've got to learn to be like the trapeze artists and to trust our catcher. We need to say what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 31, verse 14 and 15. But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. We must cling to what Jesus promised in Luke 18, 7. God will always give what is right to his people who cry to him night and day, and he will not be slow to answer them. In other words, according to his perfect timing. 
When we experience seemingly endless times of waiting, we need to have a patience of the man who prayed this one prayer, and I love it. He said, God, I cannot grasp your mind, but with my whole heart, I trust in your love. You see, ladies and gentlemen, God's timing is always perfect, just like the coming of Jesus. And at Christmas, we not only rejoice in this fact, but we must learn to be able to rest in it. We learn to trust God and his perfect timing, that God really will work all things out for our good, as the scripture says. We learn to have faith that he who began a good work in us will, will complete it. And I must add, he will do it in the right way, and he will do it in the right time. Well, here's another reason we celebrate the way Christ invaded our world. Jesus came with a perfect message. It was what mankind needed to hear because for the first time, people were truly ready to listen. And, and this is just a further testament to God's excellent timing. You see, when Jesus came, there was a moral and a religious vacuum in the world. And this vacuum is what made people hungry for the message of Jesus and the message that he was born to bring. Several things contributed to this hunger. First, at this moment in history, slaves made up a substantial part of the earth's population. And slavery made life cheap. And this cheap life produced low morality because it makes people feel hopeless. And it adds nothing but sorrow to their days because they have no hope for anything different than what they're doing today. Let me put it this way. On that first Christmas, Many people felt like they were swimming around in a morally polluted sea, and there was this longing to be morally clean again. And you may even remember when Paul spoke in the, in the synagogues, he often found Gentile seekers there. Now, this wasn't necessarily because they were, they were in search of Israel's God, but what they were in search of was Israel's morality. There was also widespread religious doubt and cynicism about the old gods that they talked about for centuries. Many people wised up to the reality that these, these false gods of the past were indeed false. Experience had shown them that man-made gods could, could, not make, could not meet man's needs. Gods made of wood, God's made of stone, God's made of gold, couldn't help a human being to become moral. They were powerless when it came to, to satisfying the inborn longing that we all have to have fellowship with our creator, God. I mean, worshiping a God of stone is like butting your head against a stone wall. When it came to, to satisfying this hunger that people have for God, these gods did not work. In short, the year that Jesus was born was a year in which the world was longing for its creator to act. Humanity at that time was hungry for God, just like the people in Europe who were hungry for the allies to come and free them from the grip of Nazi Germany. When Jesus was born, mankind hungered for the message that he came to bring. And even Jesus' birthplace symbolize the fact that he came to satisfy this, this hunger. Did you know that the word Bethlehem means house of bread? Where better 
uh, for a place for the bread of life to come into our world than at the place that's called the house of bread. Jesus came to fulfill God's promise through the prophet Isaiah when he talked about those who are thirsty and those who are hungry. In Isaiah 55, 1, he writes, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And then in Isaiah 55, 2, Why spend money on what is not bread and labor on what does not satisfy? Well, people today still long to hear the message that Jesus came for the basic reason, for the same basic reasons in the depth of our soul as human beings created by God. There is a hunger for a perfect message of Christmas. And that's why the late Billy Graham was so successful in filling stadiums during his crusades. This is why he was so successful at just presenting the basic gospel message to people and thousands upon thousands of hungry souls would come forward. And that's why we rejoice this time of year when we sing that song that says, in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting life. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in Christ Jesus that night, that night that he came and was born. And our hopes and fears are met, ladies and gentlemen, and and let me remind you why why Jesus' message is perfect and why it is exactly what we need to hear. First, we all know deep in our hearts that certain actions and activities that we are involved in in this life are wrong, but yet we still do them. This is because we are fallen beings and we are slaves to to sin's power. This is what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, when he said, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. You ever been there? We feel guilty for the wrong that we do. But on our own, we are powerless to change that. So we are slaves to sin's destiny, which is death. The words of Romans 6.23 still ring true. The wages of sin is death. And that news terrifies us. And here's one more bit of bad news. Sin ruins any chance of having a relationship with God. I mean, we know that God is there. All we have to do is look at the intricate details and beauty of this world in which we live, to know in our hearts that something greater than us had to create what we're living in. This didn't just happen from some explosion that happened in outer space. A creator God made all of it. And and we have to know that he's not just with us. He is with us all the time, but also that he loves us. Our problem is that, that God is a holy God. And being a holy God will not allow him to mix with a sinful person, not any more than water will mix with oil. They will repel each other. You see, it is our sin that separates us from God. We long for a relationship with God, the same kind of relationship that we read about in the scriptures that Adam and Eve had. But on our own, there is absolutely nothing we can do to bring that back. Just as Europe was enslaved by Hitler's power. We are enslaved by sin's power. We long to be free, but on our own, 
We just can't do it. So the news that Jesus has come is wonderful news. It is a liberating and a, and a freeing kind of news. Romans 8, 2 says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Murdo McDonald was a pastor in Scotland during World War II. He was taken prisoner by the Germans. Now, since the American prisoners of war that, that had been held did not have a chaplain, he elected to stay with them in their camp, which was very close to the English camp. The prisoners of the English camp kept in touch with him uh, and kept in touch and gave him information on the outside world through a hidden radio that they had. Um, a Scotsman would meet with, with daily with McDonald, and across a barbed wire fence, he would inform them of the news that they had received on the BBC radio. And then McDonald would relay that information to the American camps. Their conversations that they had were, were in Gaelic, which of course the Germans could not understand, so they could speak freely. Early one morning, when McDonald woke up, Someone was shouting in his ear, the Scotsman wants to see you and it's terribly important. So McDonald put on his clothes as fast as he could. He ran to that barbed wire fence where the Scotsman was there and he spoke two Gaelic words. The words meant, they've come. It was D-Day. That news spread rapidly and the reaction was incredible. Men were shouting for joy. They were hugging each other. They were leaping into the air. They were literally rolling on the ground with abandon. Freedom and deliverance was finally on its way. And news spread throughout both camps and every prisoner rejoiced. They had been longing to hear those words for what seemed like an eternity. And as I said, this is what makes Jesus' arrival so wonderful. It's a perfect message because it's exactly what you and I need to hear. We long to be free and Jesus alone, he, he makes all that possible. Paul says so in our text. Jesus was fully human, born of a woman, born under the law, just like you and I were. That is to say, just like you and I, Jesus was subject to God's demand for perfect obedience. But the di big difference between Jesus and us is that he kept God's law perfectly because he was not a slave to sin like us human beings are. And so Jesus fought our battles with temptation and he won. And because he did, since Jesus was sinless in thought and in word and in deed, he could and he did pay the price for our freedom with his own death on that cruel punishing cross. He took the punishment that we deserved. He died your death and he died my death. And this is what God's plan was all along. Jesus was literally born to die. That was the plan and it was fulfilled. And because Jesus was obedient to that plan, even to the death on the cross, when we admit our sin to God, and we ask for, for his forgiveness, he gives it. And with a sincere and a simple faith-filled prayer, our sins are washed away. And from then on, God sees us as pure. 
Colossians 1.22 says, but now he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So the perfect message of Christmas is that Jesus came to make our freedom possible. And so we praise God that Jesus came, amen? Booker T. Washington said that every morning of his young life, as a plantation slave, he was always awakened by the crow of a rooster. Long before daybreak, that unwelcome noise would would fill the, the shanties that they all lived in. And each day, he said it reminded him and all of his fellow slaves that they needed to crawl out of bed and they needed to work in the cotton fields. The rooster's crow uh, came to symbolize their dictated life of long days and back-breaking labor and ongoing abuse. But then one day came the Emancipation Proclamation when President Abraham Lincoln pronounced freedom for slaves. And the first morning after that, young Booker was once again awakened by the rooster crow. Only this time his mother was chasing it around the barnyard with an ax in her hand. (laughs) Because the Washington family fried and ate that chicken that morning for breakfast. Can you imagine the joy that they experienced knowing that they were finally free? Same kind of joy that Christians celebrate every Christmas. We rejoice over the fact that that in God's perfect timing, Jesus came to save us, to give us freedom, and he came proclaiming a perfect message. Scott, will you guys come forward and help me to close this down? I've spent about the last 30 minutes or so uh, doing my best to answer the question, why did Jesus invade our world the way that he did? And, And I shared with you reasons pertaining to his perfect timing as well as his perfect message. But can I just make this a little bit more personal to you this morning? Christ invaded our world because of his love for you. We tend to look at Jesus we look at his life, we, we look at his death on the cross and his resurrection, and we have this need to add the statement behind it for all mankind, which is true. He came to die for the sins of all mankind. But here's what I believe. I believe with all my heart when Jesus hung on that cross, in his mind, just like that LED screen, the face of every human being that ever walked this planet or ever would crossed his mind. For Jesus, it was personal. He thought of every soul that would come and go, and he came to try to make sure that they were whole and complete and that they could spend eternity with God the Father. And here's what many people don't understand about Jesus. If you're not a believer, uh, it's very easy. The world has made Christianity very cynical, uh, you know, because they look at our flaws and they act like we're supposed to be perfect or something. And God knows we're not perfect. That's why his grace is here. But we are saved. We are redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And the point is, when you receive Jesus into your life, it's, it's a personal relationship. 
It's not a concept. It's not, okay, now I'm a Christian. Well, yeah, you are a Christian when you accept Jesus and you ask him into your heart, but now he, his spirit literally indwells you. It is a personal and it is an intimate relationship. I asked the worship team to come up at the end of this service today and sing a song called Freedom Reigns. And I think it's a great way to end our service today, singing about the freedom that Jesus brought to you and me when he invaded our world. And while we're singing this song, if you have never received salvation in Christ Jesus, you can do so today. As I said, it's one thing to believe that Jesus is real. It's one thing to say I'm a Christian because I live in the United States of America, but, but that doesn't do. You must make a decision to follow him. You must make a proclamation and ask him to become Lord and give him lordship over your life. And you do that when you pray a sincere and simple faith-filled prayer. When you do that, your sins are washed away. And from then on, God sees you as pure. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So while we sing, in fact, I'm just gonna ask you all to stand right now, if you would. While we sing this song, you can either come down to this altar and pray, or you can pray right from the seat where you are sitting. Tell Jesus that you believe he is God's son. That is the only way to God the Father. Ask him to forgive you of your sin and invite him to lordship over your life. If you pray that kind of prayer and you pray it with true sincerity of the heart, because right now some of you are sensing something inside of you that is telling you to follow my instructions. That is the Holy Spirit of God that is directing you to make a commitment today. In his faithfulness to you, he has brought you here today and given you one more opportunity to receive him as Lord. Don't pass up this opportunity. If you have any kind of a need here this morning, you're already saved. You've got some kind of a need. While we worship, while we sing this song, you can either also come down to this altar or you can pray from your seat. I think we should spend some time with God if you've got a need. I always say it's best to come into this church and lay your burden down and walk away from it. Don't come and pray and then pick it back up like a football and walk out with it. You gotta leave it here. If you, if you truly trust in God, you want him to, to invade your, not just your life, but invade your problem, you gotta give it to him. You've gotta give full to him and say, I'm giving this to you. I'm not gonna deal with this anymore. So while we're singing this song, if you wanna come down to this altar and spend some time laying it on the, on the, at the foot of the cross, you can do so, or you can do it there from your seat. What I want, however, this morning is for all of us to sing praises for the freedom that God has given us due to his invasion of this world and hopefully the invasion of your own personal heart. Scott.
continue to pray at the altar. I'd like you to bow your heads with me. We will end this service in prayer. Precious Father, we thank you for the freedom 
that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ. We thank you that in your perfect timing, you brought Jesus to this earth. He fulfilled his mission. And because of that mission, Lord, we can now be reconciled to you. What a blessed gift that is. It's truly the only gift worth receiving in this world, and we thank you for it. I pray for my church family, everyone here today, those who know you, those who may have accepted you today, those who maybe are still riding the fence. God, I pray that you would open our hearts to the reality that you are the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's only a matter of time and you're gonna pull a plug on this place and you're gonna return. And it is our job to be prepared and to be ready. So Father, make our hearts not only anticipate you, but make our hearts long for you. Let us not fear the things that we see going on around us in our world, but to trust in you completely. Give us freedom of spirit. Father, give us peace in our hearts as only you can do. Not just during this holiday season, Father, but throughout the year. And Lord, I pray as we go our separate ways today that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things that we do, the conversations that we have. Lord, that those conversations would be designed to build people up and not tear them down. Father, that we would be bright lights in a very dark world. And when I say brightness, I mean that your love comes shining through in such a way that it's undeniable that we are children of God. And then Lord, you will open up doors for people to wanna know what it is that we have that is different and we can share your goodness with them. And as always, Lord, I pray between now and the next time we meet, you'll give us all a divine appointment that someone will cross our path and we'll be able to tell them of your goodness, invite them to church and hopefully lead them into a relationship with you. I also pray, Father, between now and when we gather together again, you will, you will keep us safe from sickness and disease. You will keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us so that we can join together again and worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your presence in this place. I especially thank you for your spirit that indwells those of us who know you, trust in you, and believe you, and have given our hearts to you. Father, let that spirit cause us to, to live our life in love. That's what you've called us to do. So as we leave here, let us leave in love, even loving those that are hard to love, because that's what you've called us to do. So use us, I pray, and thank you, Father, for my church family. Bless them as they go their separate ways. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen and amen.